0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this, the In Context Podcast. I'm your host, Gregor Thompson, and let's start with me wishing you a happy and productive 2022. Before we begin, could you please, if you haven't already done so already, follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening and please leave a good review, that would be very much appreciated. You can also watch the podcast on YouTube. The channel is GT Media UK, all one word. Also, all of the references made throughout the episode will be in the show notes below. This is the first episode of the year, and my guest and topic are both extremely interesting to me. Now, I only just realized that after 19 episodes, I'm yet to formally introduce myself, my background, my career, my research, and that's pretty much what I did at the start of this conversation you're about to hear, so stay tuned for that. My guest today is Greg Caruso, who is Professor of Philosophy at the State University of New York and honorary professor of philosophy at Macquarie University. He is also the co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network at the University of Aberdeen School of Law. He has written many books and papers surrounding free will, moral responsibility and punishment. He is a leading proponent of free will skepticism, which maintains that who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. And because of this, we are never truly deserving of blame or praise. This is what I've been researching myself, and hopefully I'll continue to do so this year. So I share the majority of Greg's views on this, so this was a great conversation to have. So without further ado, here is Greg Caruso. I thought we'd start actually with me almost introducing myself to you and maybe telling you a bit about my background, Um, because specifically with the topic we're gonna be discussing today, It's a topic I'm very much interested in. It's a topic I've been been interested in for a few years now, and it's only just in the last year or so that I've actually been able to research it myself and study it. Um, So when I left school, I did an undergrad in journalism and then a postgraduate in digital sociology, and I've just completed my postgraduate in philosophy. Um, And the reason that I'm very interested in this conversation we're about to have is because when I was doing my journalism degree I filmed a documentary on drug policy and I became very interested in the reasons why people choose to use drugs recreationally and the reasons why some people become problematically addicted to drugs Um, and I had a lot of sympathy for those people and I think that was almost the the catalyst for why I'm interested in whether or not we have free will because i would i I would attribute this argument to people who become problematically addicted to drugs because i don't think they had that choice the majority of the time there's some there's a a combination of reasons why people become addicted to drugs that could be upbringing society friendship groups it could be anything to do with their their brains or genetics or anything like that and so that's that's what led me to researching this and this is what led me to reading your book Just Deserves and okay. um, so I suppose my question is what led you to this what led you to the study of philosophy in general but also to believing that we don't have any free will
1: yeah it's a hard question to answer because uh, it's hard to track my own development in any kind of reliably reliable way. Um, I actually started off as a musician. I was a jazz musician and studied that uh, as an undergrad. And then somewhere along the, li- the way, I took some philosophy courses, um, met some friends who were really interested in philosophy, started doing reading groups, um, and probably because of a few influential teachers, um, I became more interested in philosophical questions than jazz uh, at the time, and so started to um, do a dual major. Um, and then at the end of that, I just decided to continue on to graduate school. Um, it's interesting how I got interested in free will. Um, I think I was always interested in the questions, you know, sort of the big perennial questions, and uh, God's existence, the existence of free will, seem to be two of the biggest ones. Um, But I was really um, headed toward a career in sort of cognitive science, philosophy of mind, consciousness studies. And I started to see a connection between some of the stuff I was doing in philosophy of mind and uh, some of the literature on free will and agency. Um, And so I pursued that early on. And my first book was actually on free will and consciousness. Um, But once I sort of came to this view of free will skepticism, which is what we'll talk about, the view that sort of denies we have the kind of free will necessary for individuals to be morally responsible in a very particular sense. Um, People started asking me about the implications of the view, the practical implications. What does this mean for society? What does it mean for the law? What does it mean for criminal justice? Um, what does it mean for punishment, for interpersonal relationships, meaning, morality? Um, and so my career has sort of um, taken this long detour where I've been exploring these practical implications of my view and sort of systematically going through and trying to address the impact of, uh, of what what the impact would be if we were to give up the belief in free will and what I call basic desert moral responsibility. Um, that said, I also have had a longstanding interest in issues of addiction and issues having to do with criminal justice. Um, I had two older siblings who were addicted to drugs um, and um, saw sort of the, the impact that had on their lives but also the kind of social conditions that cause addiction and also sort of the lottery of life and factors of luck that impact um, who gets arrested and who gets sent to jail, who doesn't get sent to jail, who has opportunities of rehabilitation, and who gets put into the penal system, and what the outcomes of those factors are on individuals and societies uh, in general. So um, my most recent work has been focused heavily on issues having to do with criminal justice, and alternatives for dealing with criminal behavior that avoid these excessively punitive and retributive uh, practices and policy, especially that you see in the United States, in the UK, in Australia. Yeah,
0: I think what you were saying there, I think it's another reason I find this area very interesting is that it is applicable to real world, real world events, real world policy and, and you know that, that sort of thing. I think a lot of people stereotype philosophy as old men sitting in armchairs, just um, theorizing in their like rich houses and they don't really know what's going on in the real world but this is applicable to the real world i think that's something that gets lost in a lot of philosophy do you think that's
1: yeah i mean especially the way that i approach the problem of free will um i like to problematize it as a set of kind of practical concerns like you know if this was a purely theoretical debate about metaphysical issues um i think it would be uninteresting um Well, yes, to the average person, but also I think philosophically, I think it would lose its grounding. So when I think about problems of free will, I like to think of it in terms of what kinds of practices um, it would justify. So I define free will Mm -hmm. as the control and action that would be required for a very particular kind of moral responsibility. Philosophers call it basic dessert. And essentially, it's the kind of moral responsibility that would make you truly deserving of praise and blame and punishment and reward for your actions. Um, and so if we have this kind of free will, it would justify certain types of what are called reactive attitudes, like moral anger or resentment when you do wrong or indignation um, or blame or retributive punishment. Um, And if we lack this kind of free will, then it would also have a major impact on our interpersonal relationships, what kinds of reactions we're justified in having when some individual wrongs us. And in particular, it would have a big impact on criminal law and social policy, um, in particular with regards to criminal justice and the criminal law with um, theories of punishment, in particular a kind of theory known as retributivism, which justifies punishing wrongdoers because they deserve it. Um, so the title of that book with Dennett is called Just Deserts." and I realize not everyone's familiar with that notion of dessert. They think of deserts or what we have after dinner um, and it's not spelled wrong, that's the proper spelling. Um, what just desserts here means is a kind of punishment that one deserves, a kind of blame that one deserves. And if we lack the kind of free will that I claim we lack, then individuals would never be justly deserving of certain types of blame and certain types of punishment. Now that's not to say there are, not, there are other ways we could deal with wrongdoing or other ways we could address you know, uh, criminal behavior. In fact, I've sketched a number of alternative ways, but I think at bottom individuals wouldn't be morally responsible in this ultimate sense or this basic sense. Um, and that should have a whole lot of practical implications. So, yeah, I I, I see the problem as a, um, a problem that affects real life um, practices and policies.
0: Um first of all, thank you for um, making those definitions clear because that was a bunch of the questions I had at the start. Was just <laughs> let's let's define things first. And um, so, a couple of more that I thought we should define at the onset is um, determinism, compatibilism and libertarianism in the context of this argument.
1: Yeah, okay, so determinism is the thesis that facts about the remote past in conjunction with say the laws of nature um, entail that there's only one fixed future. So the idea of determinism is that everything that happens um, is the necessary consequence of preceding events and actions in combination with the laws of nature. Um, And it was the sort of dominant view that came out of Newtonian physics, the kind of classical physics of Newton and Einstein and Maxwell. Um, And it raises a problem about free will because if determinism is true, i.e. everything everyone does um, or whatever happens, not just human behavior, but all events and actions in the world are determined by antecedent events. how can there be free will? And so it raises a kind of traditional problem, sometimes called the problem of determinism. And so a number of views emerged out of this. One view is called libertarianism, um, one of the terms you you said to define. Um, This is not the political view of libertarianism, this is a a metaphysical view. Um, The political form of libertarianism comes later. Um, the, the libertarian in the free will debate is someone who thinks that if determinism is true, we lack free will, because if determinism is true, agents um, lack the ability to do otherwise, i.e. what they did in that circumstance is the only thing they could have done, or determinism rules out a kind of um, required notion of sourcehood. I the agent is the appropriate source of their actions. Because if determinism is true, the source of our actions drains back to events in our antecedent past, even going back before our birth. So the libertarian says if determinism is true, we lack free will, but we have free will. And so we have a kind of indeterminate free will, a free will that requires that our actions be undetermined in some specific kind of way now different libertarian accounts spell out what's required in different ways one very famous kind of libertarianism requires that we're a kind of agent that is distinct from our physical um makeup that is we're not wholly determined by our brain chemistry and our neurons and certain electrical activity occurring in our brains and nervous system Um, but that the agent is a kind of cause that's able to act in a way that they themselves are uncaused. Um, So we are little uncaused causes. We're capable of causing our own behavior, but we're not determined by antecedent events. Um, That's a very problematic notion of free will because it requires certain kinds of commitments that most naturalistic philosophers are inclined to reject. Um, It requires a kind of agency that doesn't fit very well Into our best philosophical and scientific theories about the world. Um, There is another view called compatibilism, which is the view that says you can be both determined and free. Um, That determinism can be true, and yet we can still be held morally responsible for our actions, because what's required for free will is not the falsity of determinism, but that our actions are caused in an appropriate kind of way. That is, they're caused either by our own internal psychological states, our own wants and desires, uh, motivational preferences. And as long as they're caused by these internal states of the agent and they're not constrained uh, or compelled to act in some kind of way, that we should call that action free and the agent should be held accountable. Um, That's probably the most dominant view in contemporary philosophical views in terms of the majority of professional philosophers probably are um I argue that that view doesn't really preserve the kind of free will that we want and that we have good reasons for rejecting it, but I don't want to get into that quite yet. Um, so that's sort of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just add one thing. My own view is that whether determinism is true or or not, we would lack free will. So my view is a little bit more nuanced in that I think that if the universe is deterministic, we would lack free will because agents would not be the appropriate source of their actions in the way that's required. Their actions would ultimately be the result of factors beyond their control. Um, But if indeterminism is true, if we introduce some just indeterminacy in the sequence of events leading up to our actions, that wouldn't preserve free will any more than determinism because on that kind of a picture of agency, the individual, you, would not be able to settle which outcome occurs because indeterminate events are um, no more in control of the agent than determinate events. Um, if they're the result of just quantum probabilistic behavior, um, that doesn't seem to be the kind of agency we, we view when we we think of uh, free will. We, you know, the agent would not be able to settle which outcome occurs in any more you know any more uh, appropriate sense than if determinism was true. So, like, if there was just a sequence of events leading up to my choice whether to make coffee or tea this morning, and I choose coffee because of some quantum indeterminacy that maybe percolates up to a level of of neural networks and affects my my choice to choose the coffee. Well, if I were to rewind that tape and play it over and over again, if it were truly indetermined, um, every replaying would have a different outcome. Um, But that doesn't seem to be what we want when we want free will. We want an agent that's capable of settling which outcome occurs not leaving it up to chance or mere probabilities. Um, We want the agent to be able to determine that I choose coffee and not tea. We want the agent to be able to make a difference as to whether I choose coffee or tea. And on on a model that just posits indeterminacy simply in the level of events, it would seem that the agent wouldn't have the ability to settle which outcome occurs, it would be the byproduct again of factors beyond the control of the agent. So, whether it's determinism or indeterminism, it would seem that our actions are the result of factors beyond our control.
0: Does indeterminacy always have to do with the causal sequence of events prior to an action, or could the action itself be the the the, the event that is indetermined? So, if if the if the Causes stay the same. I suppose that's that's determinism. Um, lead up to an action, and de- but the action is indetermined. I.e., the the agent is able to choose what to do with a thought or something happening in the past. Is that not more? Is that not more a plausible version of indeterminacy?
1: It it really is important where you place the indeterminacy. Mm-hmm. But if you want to place it after the moment of action, Mm -hmm. um, then that just seems like the outcome is a matter of luck. So for example, if I choose to pull the trigger and I do pull the trigger, um, but other factors uh, intervene, and so I end up not killing Fred because Fred ducks at, at some inopportune moment or something like that, that is the indeterminacy is placed outside of the agent, um, the outcome is indeterminate. Um, you know Whether or not he dies by the gunshot is indeterminate. That would just seem to be a, a byproduct of luck. And everything seems to be, would be a, still deterministic within the agent. Um, and so that doesn't seem to get around the problem of, of determinism. If you place it internal to the agent, it's really important to get where you place it. And you would, I, I would just ask for an account and then I would, probably look for ways in which the holes in this account. So that my route to free will skepticism, essentially to look at all of the, you know, leading uh, dominant views that have been proposed, argue that they each fail for different reasons and then say that uh, free will skepticism remains the only rational view standing.
0: What do you think of, I I, I think I read this in, Sam Harris's book, Free Will, that he says that the notion of free will itself is an illusion, not just that free will is an illusion, the actual what free what we think free will is, is an illusion.
1: Um, it depends on what Sam means by that. I mean, there are ways of framing it where um, I guess I could agree. And then there are ways of framing it where I disagree. Um, I'm pretty specific about how I define free will. So I define free will in terms of the control and action that would be required for agents to be truly deserving of praise and blame and punishment and reward in some purely backward looking sense. Um, I don't think there's any problem knowing what that notion of free will means. That is, it's a relatively clear notion of free will. It's consistent with what ordinary people tend to think they think there's this tight connection between free will and moral responsibility, i.e. if I'm not in control of my actions in a very specific kind of way, then I wouldn't be morally accountable for them in a very specific kind of way. Um, I think what Sam uh, means when he says that has to do with the experience of free will, and how we experience our own actions. I guess there I partly disagree, I think. Um, I think there is a very real sense of agency that people experience. Um, yeah, maybe through Buddhist training and meditation, you could pierce the veil of that and and see beyond it. But I think the average person feels a sense of agency over their choices. Um, and I think there are, um, There are disorders of agency that show how how powerful our sense of agency actually is. Like it could break down in different ways. Like our sense of agency has a sense of ownership and a sense of um, authorship. So for example, I feel ownership over the thoughts that are flowing through my consciousness right now. Um, There are people who don't feel ownership. There are certain people who experience schizophrenic thought insertion. So they literally think the thoughts that they're thinking are not their thoughts, they belong to someone else. They're in their stream of consciousness, but they're Fred's thoughts, they're not mine. Well, that shows you how agency breaks down. And if that were to break down, um, it would lead to these radical kinds of disorders. Um, So the average person doesn't feel that way. The average person feels that they own their own stream of consciousness, that they, they feel ownership over their actions. Um, And we also feel a sense of authorship. Um, I feel like it's me who's moving my arm um, Mm -hmm. and that it's somehow I'm the author of that movement. There are people who don't experience that. There are people who have um, anarchic hand syndrome, like in the movie, uh, Dr. Strangelove where his hand is always trying to strangle him. There are actually people who have this kind of disorder where they feel like their limbs are being controlled by some external agent or they're not being controlled by themselves. Um, In fact, it's just so intuitive, our sense of agency, that we don't often question it. Um, Now, I think our sense of agency is an illusion, um, but I think it's a very real phenomena. So in my first book um, on free will and consciousness, I try to explain how that sense of agency gets built up through our best understanding of the mind and our best understanding of consciousness. Um, and I try to give an account of how that sense of agency um, arises. But I think that you the seemings, the appearance of agency and that sense we have is a very real phenomenon. Um, I just think that it doesn't point to any agent who stands beyond or separate from a series of events that cause our particular types of you know behaviors and movements. So it would, I guess I would need to know more about what Sam actually means when mm-hmm. he says that. Um, but I think that um, our sense of free will is a very real one. Um, anyone who denies free will like myself needs to explain why agents feel free nonetheless. And I think that's the burden of proof. And I think um, I try to satisfy that burden of proof, but I think it's an important one.
0: I think one of the one of the arguments I tried to make in my last um, dissertation concerning free will was it was a consciousness argument. It was basically because people do I think people feel they have agency over their actions. But I think it's it's fairly easy to like you say, pierce the veil of people's sense of urgency over their thoughts. Because I think with some like a very small amount of introspection you can you can realize that the thoughts that appear in your consciousness are just are just doing that they're appearing like yeah. you're not you don't control the next thought, so I suppose that was one of my my big arguments was to say, if we can't control the next thought that enters our brain, how can we ever say that we control the action that we do with that thought yeah a book at like one of my one of the previous episodes I spoke with a neuroscientist and he said yeah you might not have any control over the the thought itself but you can control what you do with the thought so that like your past and all these events can lead you to without any control from you to have a thought but you ultimately have some form of control over what you do with the thought so you could have a thought of say I'm like a horrible thought of I'm going to kill that person but you you have the choice and you have the the ability to say I'm not going to do that and then move on with your day whereas someone might not do that
1: yeah I mean I I think there's a, a number of things uh one could say here I mean first of all on the you could control what you do with your thoughts idea I think the question would be what type of control you're positing there right like A compatibilist would say, um, you don't need to control your thoughts, um, to have free will per se. You don't have to like voluntarily be able to bring them about that your actions just have to follow in a certain kind of way from those internal psychological states. They have to follow in a kind of causal way. They have to be responsive to reasons. They have to be, um, Uh, uh, caused by motivational states that you yourself would approve of, they have different kinds of conditions that would be required. And they say that that kind of control is is sufficient for free will. A libertarian might say, you have a different type of control, a kind of control where you can intervene and do something that's not completely causally determined by those motivational states. I think that the libertarian account is a much more difficult account, and I think it requires a kind of set of metaphysical commitments that would be easily challenged. I think the harder kind of view to dispel is the uh, compatibilist view, um, and so I think the arguments against compatibilism are um, a little bit a little bit more difficult to give. But I think that there are reasons for for rejecting. Uh, for rejecting this kind of picture. The most obvious one to me would be to think about a case where the agent is, um, the, their actions are caused by intentional, internal psychological states that in, themselves are manipulated by some external agent. So let's think of a case where um, some team of neuroscientists has some uh, ability to control my brain directly through some some you know, external manipulator. Let's say there's, a, there's some kind of device in my brain that I don't, I'm not aware of, and they could cause in me various wants and desires and beliefs and motivational states. So they could cause in me the desire for a cup of coffee, the belief that um, we have coffee available in the kitchen. Um, they could cause in me certain kind of motivational uh, preferences that could cause me the uh, higher order approval of the giving in to my desire for coffee, all of that. And let's say I make myself a cup of coffee. People tend to have the intuition that this person is not doing so freely um, because their actions are the result from some external manipulator. Yet they satisfy all the compatibilist conditions on free will. And then the, then the um, argument against compatibilism would proceed by giving you maybe a set of cases um, where each is a little bit more, um, a little bit different in its description of the kind of manipulation that's involved. But eventually you would get to a case of natural determinism. And in the case of natural determinism, you're no more in control of your internal psychological state, your desires, your preference for coffee, your belief that there's coffee in the kitchen. Those themselves would be caused by factors beyond your control. And the argument is essentially, if we're not free and more responsible in the manipulation case, and there's no philosophically or you know philosophically relevant difference between the manipulation case and the case of natural determinism. We should conclude that we're no more free in the case of natural determinism. Um, and so the burden would be on the compatibilist to explain why there's this relevant difference between a case of where our internal psychological states are caused by some external manipulator and when they're caused by some external events beyond our control, like you know, the laws of nature, antecedent upbringing, brain chemistry. It doesn't matter if they're beyond our control, they're beyond our control. And the compatibilist has to give an account of how our actions can be caused by factors beyond our control and yet we still be free. So what,
0: right, so one question I had was, how has the knowledge of free will skepticism affected your life personally? Have you, for me, it, it allows me to treat people with a bit more empathy. Um, to be a bit more a bit more humble with um, with my own achievements and um, just be a bit like kinder to people because you realise people didn't make themselves, people didn't had no control over the prior events leading up to someone say cutting you off in traffic or just someone being a bit nasty to you. That there's there majority of the times or well, all of the times there's reasons for these people being like that and there's reasons for me if I if I was in a bad mood and I, I did something bad there's a reason why I did that.
1: Yeah, so um, I guess I could think about it both on a kind of um, interpersonal level, like maybe as a parent to my daughter, um, or as a friend to a colleague, or I could think about it on the level of my attitudes toward public policy and my views and uh, say, criminal justice. I think it's changed me quite a bit, and it's affected um, my views um, on a daily basis. So, um in addition, by the way, I mean we talked a lot about determinism and indeterminism. I want to throw in that there's a separate kind of concern that um, really is sort of you know independent completely of these discussions of determinism and indeterminism, and that's the problem of luck, which is that um, it seems that who we are is also a byproduct of the pervasiveness of luck, and in particular, um, the kind of luck that um, factors into our constitutive character. So the kind of luck I'm thinking about is the kind of luck of the lottery of life, the kind of luck as to who your parents were, what society you were born into, whether you were born rich or poor, white or black, male or female, whether you were born with um, uh, a disability or or not, whether you um, were predisposed to addiction or not, or whether or not um, you, know, you have some sort of... Um, you know, you're born into a house of a loving and supportive house or an abusive household. Those are matters beyond our control. And they're matters that we often refer to as issues of luck. And then and so those are make up what I call constitutive luck, the kind of luck that makes us the kind of agents we are. It's the luck that makes us into the psychological agents we are that shapes our likes and dislikes and preferences and motivational states and the way we reason and deliberate. And then there's Uh, Then there's present luck, which is luck around the time of action. That could be the luck of um, the color of the wall or um, whether I've gotten to an argument right before having to make a a difficult life choice or the luck of um, circumstantial features of my environment that could influence me in ways that I'm unaware of. It could be the luck of whether my mind wanders at the right or wrong moment. What reasons become most salient in my deliberation at that particular instant, and my argument would be our actions are the byproduct of um, either constitutive luck or present luck or both, and constitutive and present luck individually and separately undermine free will and moral responsibility so when I think of people um, addiction crime wrongdoing i've been i've been you know I tend to see individuals as byproduct of their circumstances. And the intuitions about the lottery of life not being equal for all of us and the challenges that drove individuals to their particular types of behavior um, are always in the forefront of my mind. So in terms of how I interact with individuals, I tend less to resort to blame and moral anger and resentment and indignation. Um, I do so because I also realize that these are unjustified Types of emotional reactions to wrongdoing. Now, that's not to say, you know, you just forgive people or you let, you know, wrongdoing go by without any, um, you know, any reaction at all. I just think that you want to replace the types of reactions we have with more forward-looking, effective responses. So, for example, if my daughter does something at school, she does something wrong, and, and she engages in kind of behavior I disapprove of. The free will skeptic can say, well, instead of moral anger or blame, one could engage in a forward-looking kind of conversational approach that focuses on aspects of her as an individual that may be responsible for that wrongdoing, causally responsible for that wrongdoing, um, to identify those features of herself to acknowledge that she would be better off without these particular properties or characteristics, and then try to figure out ways moving forward that she could try to work at changing those aspects of herself so that she doesn't engage in that kind of behavior in the future. Um, So instead of moral anger or resentment or blame, you could feel sorrow or disappointment because those don't presuppose the kind of free will that I reject. Um, and often moral anger is corrosive to our, our, our interpersonal relationships. It's often counterproductive from a perspective of trying to improve an agent. Um, people shut down in the face of moral anger or in the face of blame. And so I tend to think that these different ways of addressing wrongdoing are not only more justified, they're more humane and they're also in most cases more effective at achieving the desired ends that we want. Um, And so I tend to, again, not, you know, blame individuals as harshly, not to seek retribution in the face of wrongdoing. Um, But when I think about public policy, that's where I also think the the really important um, insights come. I think that we need to move away from a retributive system of justice, a retributive um, system of punishment in, in the realm of criminal justice, because I think retributivism presupposes a kind of free will and a kind of desert that I reject. And so I see it as not justified. Retributive punishment says absent any excusing conditions, wrongdoers are morally responsible for what they do and hence justly deserve to suffer for those wrongs. Regardless of whether that punishment would produce any forward-looking benefits. I don't care, the retributivist says, right? Like you deserve this punishment I don't care if it makes us safer. I don't care if it deters crime. I don't care if it helps in the moral formation of this wrongdoer. I wanna see them suffer. Um, I I wanna see some retribution, some payback. Um, That is a dominant kind of intuition people feel. And I I know it it arises naturally, but I think that it is one of the most pernicious kinds of um, reactions we have not only do I think you know it's unjustified, I think it ends up doing more harm than good. It's counterproductive, it's inhumane, it doesn't produce good outcomes. Um, and that we would be better off rejecting that kind of reaction to criminal behavior and adopting a completely non-retributive approach to criminal behavior.
0: What would you say to someone who who is listening to that and they would maybe respond by saying, well, we're, where's my accomplishments then if if everything's purely down to luck is anyone's amazing accomplishments really still as impressive as they would be if we if we thought that they were free to do so so if someone say broke a world record or or came up with a theory that was that was incredible is that still impressive for that person to do that if they had no will to do it And I suppose my second, my second point is some people might argue back and say, well, if we have no no free will, what's the point in doing anything or worse, I may as well do something bad because I, I'm not choosing to do it.
1: Okay. Yeah. So two separate things, I guess on the uh, accomplishments thing, there's a number of kind of nuanced things you you kind of want to say here. Um, Mm -hmm. One, um, I think we want to still attribute certain accomplishments to agents. So there's different types of responsibility. I think it's really important to distinguish. Um, There's this kind of um, basic dessert responsibility that I'm rejecting. But attributability responsibility is the kind of responsibility that, say, we could attribute various traits and various features to individuals. So I I like to use the example of Albert Einstein. He was a uh, free will skeptic he was a hard determinist. Um, His views on physics were deterministic. And so he believed agents were um, uh, determined and unfree. And so in this interview that I often like to to cite, um, the interview asks him essentially, so wait, you don't deserve praise for developing general relativity? Um, And and his response is, no, he doesn't think he deserves a kind of basic sense of praise, that is, you know, he doesn't think he deserves dessert-based, deserves praise any more than, you know, um, you know cells deserve to be praised for, for their cellular division, let's say. Um, but that said, I think we could still attribute to Einstein a kind of creativity that others lacked. That is, he was a unique kind of thinker. And creativity here could be defined in relational terms. We could compare Einstein to his peers and point out the kind of creative um, uh, uh, ways of, of thinking that he was able to engage in that his peers weren't. We could point to the differences between him and others. And we could say that there was a kind of originality with Einstein. There was a kind of creativity that Einstein brought to physics. And we could say that without inconsistency. Um, we could also attribute to Einstein um, certain types of accomplishments, right? Like we could say that Einstein is causally responsible for having introduced general relativity. Well, there's no problem with that kind of responsibility either. Um, I think what we have to resist, however, is um, the idea that he deserves some kind of basic praise um, that would be analogous to the kind of basic blame that I wanna reject, right? So if agents aren't blameworthy in this basic sense, I, I, I also wanna say they're not praiseworthy in this basic kind of sense. But that's not to say we have to give up on creativity or originality or attributing various properties to agents, um, their, their perseverance, their their um, work ethic, their, um, their creativity, their um, origin, you know, Originality; those are all things we could still say of the agent, um, and I think it's sufficient. I think that preserves much of what we care about when it comes to accomplishments. We care to be able to attribute to the agent some specific set of accomplishments, even if they don't; they were not self-made, even if those accomplishments were the byproduct of their character, which themselves was the result of factors beyond their control. Um, and I think when we're careful, sometimes we even acknowledge this about ourselves. Like um, if someone were to praise me for some moral characteristic, I might wanna take that praise and, and own it and think it's all of my own doing. But a lot of times upon reflection, we often say, well, that, you know, thanks to my parents, they raised me well. Right? That's the kind of common reaction people have. Well, that's the kind of insight we have when we realize, well, my own moral development was largely a byproduct of how I was raised. Um, And I just happened to have the good luck of being raised by parents who instilled me with certain types of values. Um, And so we often see that, but we don't, we don't hold on to it in all contexts. So yeah, I do want to reject the idea of the romantic genius, this kind of, um, you know, Idea that we once had of like pure originality that is purely of the, the, the individual's own making, and because of that, they're wholly self-made, and they de- they deserve some adulation that you know um, is is deserved in some basic sense. Um, I don't see that. I see people as again both their good deeds and their bad deeds as byproducts of factors beyond their control. That's again not to say that. Um, I can engage in some kind of moral protest when you do wrongdoing, as long as that moral protest is aimed at future moral development, future reconciliation and future safety, I can justify questioning your actions. Also in terms of the person who just wants to sit back and say, well, free will skepticism true, I just won't do anything or I'll just, why shouldn't I do wrong things? Well, we don't have to give up on morality, I argue. Axiological judgments of right and wrong and good and bad behavior remain in place even if we reject basic desert moral responsibility. We still can say that what Hitler did was wrong or bad, right? Um, and we want to be able to say that. We want to be able to acknowledge certain actions as good or harmful or bad, and those kind of axiological judgments are independent of desert. Um, so we could say that what you did is wrong and people generally should try to avoid wrongdoing, right? Um, I could engage in some kind of act of moral protest when you do some action that wrongs me in some way. Um, I could ask you why you made that choice. Reflect upon your own character and what might've caused you to do it. See whether that characteristic is something that we would be better off revising or doing without. And then moving forward work to change ourselves. That is all consistent with the rejection of free will. Also, um, we have a a right to protect ourselves against wrongdoing. So if you were to um, kill someone or engage in some violent criminal act, my argument is that we could still incapacitate you, even even if you're not deserving of blame or morally responsible in the basic desert sense. So the argument I give here is what I call the public health quarantine model. Um, and it's based on an analogy with people who have communicable diseases. And when I first developed this, by the way, no one had any experience with pandemics or with quarantine. <laughs> and Now, sadly, the whole world has personal acquaintance with these things. And so maybe in certain ways, it's a little bit easier to understand now. But the idea would be something like this. Let's say I came to meet you in person and I took, you know, a flight abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was tested at the airport and I test positive for Ebola. Well, I think we'd all agree that the state is morally justified in quarantining me. And the right and the justification for limiting my liberty, restricting my freedom, would be the right of self defense and prevention of harm to others. That is, the state is justified in quarantining me as so as to prevent a pandemic, mm-hmm. um, to prevent. Um, large quantities of people from being harmed. Now that justification in no way appeals to free will or just deserts or retribution or moral responsibility. In fact, we often assume the is not responsible for having contracted the communicable. disease. And yet I'm still justified in restricting their liberty. And so what I would argue is that we could give a analogous account for incapacitating seriously violent offenders. That is, we can, we can incapacitate, not punish, but incapacitate, r- restrict their liberty, child molesters and serial killers and repeat violent offenders um, on the grounds of self-defense and prevention of harm to others, analogous to the justification we have for quarantining people with communicable diseases. And we could do so without, again, resorting to free will or more responsibility or just deserts or retribution. Of course, if we adopt this framework, it requires extensive um, revision and extensive reform of our criminal justice system. So for example, you're justified in restricting my liberty, um, but you're not justified in dehumanizing me or disenfranchising me. So let's say I have Ebola and you quarantine me. Well, yes, you're justified in that restriction, but you're not justified in stripping me of my voting rights. You're not justified in stripping me of all my other human rights. In fact, I retain all my other human dignity and should retain all of my other basic rights as a a citizen. Um, And so my argument is that most of the kinds of excessive forms of punishment we engage in, especially in the United States would be unjustified. Um, We're justified in restricting liberty, but we're not justified in other punitive measures that impugn the dignity of individuals. Um, Second, you have a moral duty if you quarantine me at the airport to treat me from my Ebola and then release me the minute I'm no longer a threat to public health. Well, I would argue the same is true with criminal justice that the purpose of the criminal justice system should be rehabilitation and reintegration. And we lack any continued justification for incapacitating wrongdoers the minute they're no longer a threat to society. Also, I argue we have to accept the principle of least restriction. We should adopt the least restrictive measure necessary consistent with protecting public health and public safety. So if there's a less restrictive measure than quarantine, we we should adopt that. So we don't quarantine people for the common cold, even though if I sneeze on you and you get sick, I've caused you some harm. We think the common cold is an acceptable type of risk in society that we only restrict liberty in very precise, very restricted, very um, unique cases. In fact, quarantine is a very um, restrictive measure that is only used um, as a last resort. We want to adopt all other measures possible before we turn to quarantine. And so I would argue that many of the current things we currently incarcerate people for in the United States would be better dealt with with less restrictive measures. So going back to our beginning of our discussion, um, I think, for example, the vast majority of people in prison in the United States are there because of underlying drug addiction issues. Either they're, they're there because of possession or crimes caused by addiction. The vast majority of them are not um, a, um, a serious threat to, to society and would be better dealt with by drug treatment. My model is also consistent with the decriminalization of many things we currently incarcerate people for. So for personal possession of marijuana and certain types of recreational drugs, I favor, rec- um, I favor decriminalizing possession for those. Because a large majority of our mass incarceration crisis is caused largely due to addiction issues that would be better dealt with by alternative means. Vast majority of people in the United States, over 50% who are imprisoned in prison, the United States have a diagnosable mental illness. The vast majority of them would be better dealt with in mental health services than than imprisonment. Um, And so I wanna wanna look at why we incarcerate people, the length for which we incarcerate, um, the purposes for which we incarcerate, and my model would drastically entail a whole lot of reform. So that was a long answer, but I would say that, um, you know, twofold here, just to sum it up. I mean, one, I think that um, you know, if you were to just sit back and say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Um, that's not the appropriate attitude in face of determinism. You still have to make choices. Um, mm-hmm. Even if the choices you make are the byproduct of factors beyond your control. And you're still going to be judged by your actions. You're still going to, I could still say that what you did was wrong or bad. And you might still be, I still might be justified in incapacitating you. If the, if the, risk that you pose to society is severe enough. So I think that, you know, we have to have ways of dealing with wrongdoing, but we also have to um, realize that people are embedded in social systems, they're embedded in the context of society that affect outcomes especially when you look at criminal behavior, people are byproducts of the social determinants that cause their behavior. Things like poverty and low socioeconomic status and mental health and environmental health and access to education and healthcare all affect criminality and criminal incarceration rates. If we want to reduce crime, we should shift the focus away from this myopic obsession with punishment to Prevention and social justice un- addressing the underlying causes
0: I think everything you just said like perfectly like summarizes your view of free will skepticism and the um, the implications and it also summarizes your your TED talk looking into the dark sides of believing that we have free will and um, before we move on, I just want this question this question is more just for me actually, but um so I'm currently um, applying for PhD programs and uh, my proposal generally deals with free will, moral responsibility and punishment. And I want to, I want to put emphasis on the implications of um, changing policy regarding, with, regarding free will, punishment and moral responsibility. And um, so I want it to be as well as philosophical, sociological and criminal criminological for me. And um, but I suppose one of the questions after you is um what is an under-researched area in this debate that is needed to be researched?
1: Um that's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of different areas that you know that fall out of my general proposal. So mm-hmm. this public health quarantine model is a view I develop in my other book, Rejecting Retributivism. Um one thing i've done but i think more work needs to be done is a better and fuller understanding of what i call the social determinants of criminal behavior um in the book i, I analyze them i look at numerous studies and i argue that they're essentially analogous to the social determinants of health and it's just like public health institutions um, are aimed at addressing the underlying causes of poor health outcomes which by the way are also usually social in mm-hmm. nature like if you wanna reduce infant mortality rates, a purely health-based outcome, and you look at somewhere like India, where children tend to die more, like, more at higher rates in birth, in, at birth, or don't make it through adolescence. Um, well, one of the things you realize is that these poor outcomes are often the byproducts of sexism and the inability of women to have reproductive control over their bodies, lack of literacy among women, um, a uh, lack of access to birth control. And so if you want to address that poor health outcome, you often have to address the social injustices that cause it. And so one thing I think is in need of further work is being able to identify and track these kind of social st- factors that are driving criminality so we could adopt more effective policies and programs uh, to target those social uh, injustices. So I think we need, um, We need a more um, essentially uh, evidence-based approach to what works. And I think we know generally where are the major areas we have to intervene if we want to effectively reduce criminal behavior. Um, But I think a lot more research could be done there so that we could appropriately allocate our funds in the right places. Um, I think another Place that it would be um, useful to investigate is what types of rehabilitations work most effectively for different types of um, different types of individuals. So, for example, I want to acknowledge there's a difference between someone suffering from psychopathy and suffering someone who is a reasons-responsive agent and commits wrongdoing, um, you know, for reasons that they approve of, and 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 acknowledge that it's wrong, but don't do it nonetheless. And so I think what types of rehabilitations would work for different types of individuals? Mm-hmm. Um, psychopathy, psychopathy is a particularly difficult one because a lot of types of treatments that have been attempted have been shown to fail with when it comes to psych, psychopaths. Um, but I think we wanna look at what works for different types of people, sexual offenders, violent offenders, people suffering from psychopathy, and separate those from the ones who are suffering from mental illnesses or underlying addiction issues and think what works most effectively to address those types of um, underlying causes. Um, the other things I think are harder, which are just, how do we convince people? Like this is like a PR type issue or question. How do we convince people to move away from this retributive approach to crime and wrongdoing, to a preventative approach that focuses more on the underlying systemic causes, um, and there, I you know, I think I have answers, but I also think more work needs to be done because I think that this is where things link up with larger social and political ways of thinking um, that are sort of beyond my pay grade in a way. Um, I don't wanna overly politicize the issue of free will, but I do think that there there are strands of political thinking that are either more resistant or more um, sympathetic to this way of of thinking of things. So in the United States, we have this overwhelming kind of commitment to the rugged individualism. Um, And I think that overwhelming commitment to individualism has been um, a hurdle really, in the way of adopting effective practices and policies. Because if you think of everything as a byproduct of individual responsibility, take if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if, 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 if everything is a byproduct of individual responsibility, the hammer is the punitive approach, right? The, the right response to wrongdoing is a punitive one if it's just an issue of moral responsibility. So if you're poor, it's because you failed. You deserve <laughs> that poverty. If you've succeeded, it was all of your own making. You deserve all of your success. That way of thinking I think is false by the way, but I also think it stands in the way of shifting our approach to this more evidence-based uh, um, you know, approach toward addressing the social determinants of crimes. Because individuals are less likely to see our actions as the byproduct of social determinants when they think it was all a matter of their own achievement. Mm-hmm. And so when you see people in jail, when you, have this, when you have this approach, it's because they deserve it. And when you see people in poverty, it's because they deserve it. They just need to work harder. They just need to you know, um, grit and bear it or you know, show some effort or grit. Um, but not, people don't recognize the lottery of life isn't always fair and people you know, have more hurdles. Even our successes are not all of our own doing. And what we have to realize is that much of this is a byproduct of chance and luck. Um, And yeah, there are aspects of agents that contribute. My effort contributes to those outcomes. But whether you're an agent who is capable of that kind of effort is itself a byproduct of factors beyond your control. And so we need to start looking at individuals um, as, as byproducts of factors that shape who we are and shape our outcomes such that we can then begin to adopt practices that are more effective, more humane, and and um, um, I think, you know, less retributive and less punitive.
0: And I just want to go through some very quick questions. These are the ones I ask every guest. They're very quick, but these will be... Um, I believe probably questions you've not been asked before, and they do give some um, interesting answers. So, um, what is your favorite word?
1: It's hmm. a good question. Um, <laughs> maybe philosophy, just because I'm a philosopher. But it has multiple meanings. It hmm. it, it it basically is my life it's my job but i don't separate sort of who i am from what i do in that regard and uh um i strive to be one so i think it's an aspirational term too
0: do you have a least favorite word
1: retributive
0: (laughs) that's a good one um what's one book you've gifted to the most people Um, or that you would gift to the most people?
1: Yeah. So one book, a fiction book um, that uh, I, it was the first book I gave my wife, I think um, when we first started dating was the unbearable lightness, the unbearable, um, uh, yeah. Lightness of being by Milan Kundera. Um, It's, it's a book, um, you know, it's a book about political events in, in Europe um, during a time of communism. Um, but they're very philosophical in ways. And even just the notion of the unbearable lightness of being was one I was try- I think is a kind of interesting and important one that we often think of the unbearable heaviness of being, but the unbearable lightness of being is the realization that um, a million different contingencies have to occur at any given moment for pretty much any event to take place. So in the context of meeting my wife, you know, one of the things I wanted to say was, um, you know if if the phone had rang as i was leaving the home my house that day and i stopped to answer it we wouldn't have met you know if mm-hmm. i spilled coffee on my shoes and stopped to clean it we wouldn't have met and um, and it's unbearable to think of the lightness of that mm-hmm. that the fact that we met the probability of that event happening is so statistically unlikely that you would have to expect it never would right and that's mm-hmm. kind of unbearable that life is like a spider web if you breathe on it it just completely collapses. And yet these events happen, right? Like it happened. The the fact that me and you were talking is so statistically improbable when you think (laughs) about not only our own life courses, but the potato famine could have got one of our ancestors, the the ship by which my ancestors came over to America could have sank. Um, poverty could have got you know my grandfather or anything that could have been altered would have affected this event from happening and yet it's happening. There's a kind of unbearable lightness to that. So I really like the book, both for how it's written, but also just the message of, of that concept.
0: Interesting. Um, what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most impacted your life?
1: So they got what?
0: what purchase of $100 or less has most impacted you? Good
1: question. Um, I would probably say my earliest purchases of albums of Miles Davis when I was young. as i said i was a jazz musician uh mm-hmm. early on and miles davis was my gateway uh and it completely altered my life but it also sent me on a path to pursue music which probably you know is what led me eventually to pursue philosophy so if i hadn't spent that money um listening to those albums you know early mm-hmm. on i probably wouldn't be here right now yeah well
0: um If you could have a gigantic billboard going out to billions of people, what would you have it say?
1: Um, Be kind, I think. Kindness is an underrated virtue. Um, And uh, yeah, be kind to other individuals. Kindness doesn't cost us much, but it has lots of uh, rewards. That's
0: a good one. Um, What is some bad advice you hear in your profession?
1: well there's lots in philosophy uh (laughs) lots of bad advice um i think i would the 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 thing i resist the most is this obsession with rankings in 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 my discipline both rankings of publications and rankings of schools Mm -hmm. and rankings um so i think the bad advice is 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 to give in to um the pressures I think of the discipline that say um, your work is the most important thing in your life and that you should you know try to achieve this academic success even at the expense of your personal lives and your mental well-being. So I think the balance in life is difficult, and I think I'm guilty of it too. I spend way too much time working um, and wish I probably could spend more time with family and friends. Um, but i would I would say the bad advice is to um, you know say yes to everything and to pursue these expectations of just publish or perish in, in, in all contexts yeah.
0: mm-hmm. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do?
1: Read or listen to music
0: yeah mm-hmm. and I probably already know the answer to this, but what sound or noise do you love
1: um I mean, yes, I, I I I love the sound of my bass, and I love the sound of Miles Davis trumpet. But I guess the thing I would have to put above all of it is the sound of my daughter's voice. Probably. Mm. Yeah.
0: Do you have a a noise that you hate?
1: Um. Yeah. Um, my wife, you know, does that thing with her nails where she sits sometimes, the nervousness mm-hmm. and that uh clicking of your nails is gets under my uh skin. Mm.
0: And lastly, if heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you arrive?
1: Um I guess welcome. Uh despite my doubts and uh <laughs> my occasional uh attempts to argue against God's existence, I, I guess I would uh I would want access if it were if it were real.
0: So yeah. Right and lastly so where can people where can people find you where can they stay up to date with um, the work that you're doing and where can people um, buy the books um just here, of course, as I've got as
1: yeah most most everything can be found on my website which is just www.gregcaruso.com. um g r e g g c a r u s o um and then also on twitter um i'm pretty active on twitter and i share recent publications and links to articles and books. So um, I think it's at Greg D. Caruso is my handle. Um, So those two places are probably the easiest. And My website in particular will send you to places you can get the books.
0: Well, Greg, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, It's been a pleasure. I mean, this is a conversation I could have for hours, so it'd be great to um, have you back on. I had about five pages of questions ready and I was just like um, curating them as I went, just picking the most important ones
1: I wanted to make. Oh yeah, yeah, we should talk more.
0: So. Yeah, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. And so that's the end of the episode. I hope you found that as profound, as interesting as I did. If you enjoyed the conversation and want to know more, I recommend watching Gred's TED Talk on YouTube, as well as reading his books, which will all be linked below. And once again, if you could please follow or subscribe wherever you're listening and leave a good review, that's the number one way to support this podcast. You can also watch the show on YouTube. The channel is GT Media UK, all one word. I have a website with all my other work, articles, videos, audio on gtmedia.uk. I have Instagram where you can stay up to date with everything surrounding the podcast, which is also gtmedia.uk. And lastly, I have a Facebook page, which is Gregor Thompson-Journalist. That's G-R-E-G-O-R space T-H-O-M-S-O-N dash journalist. Thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for episode 21 of the In Context podcast. Take care.